Let's pray and ask the Lord to, to speak to us. God, we want to worship you now by the honor that we give to your word. And we pray that you would open our hearts, broaden our ability to comprehend what you want to say to us. We do not want to walk out unchanged. We want to walk out closer to you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit right now would speak with power, that your word would, would go out and not come back void, that it would accomplish the purpose that you are sending it out for tonight, that hearts would be changed and drawn closer to you as a result. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So the book of Hebrews, we talked about it a little bit last week as we got into the first couple chapters. It's a very distinct book in the New Testament for a couple reasons. One, we do not know its author. Uh, it's human author because we know very clearly that the author of the book of Hebrews is the Holy Spirit. But as far as which human being did he use to write it, we're not totally sure. Some people say it was Luke. Some people say it was Paul. Uh, it could have been somebody who we have no mention of anywhere in the scriptures. We really don't know. We know that the person who wrote it had a very, uh, very comprehensive grasp of the Old Testament and specifically of the Old Testament law and specifically of the role of the priesthood. Uh, they are also friends with Timothy. And so that's really all the clues we have as far as who wrote the book of Hebrews. And so truthfully... We have no answer and it doesn't matter. What does matter is the subject and the content of the book and the context. And so if we're, careful, if we're not careful, we talked about this last week, but we can read the book of Hebrews and go through it and think that was the most uh, just disorganized book of the Bible I've ever read. And that's because it's written from an Eastern perspective. In the Western world, we're very linear in our train of thought. You know, we like point A, point B, point C, and they should all connect. In the Eastern world, that's just entirely not relevant. They don't see that as an important part of telling a story. They care about what's the central fact, and then, you know, it's like we're putting spokes on a wheel or, you know, nuts on a tire. It's, we're just going around, and, and as long as the whole thing ends up on, on the axle the right way and we're rolling, it doesn't matter. And so linear is not super critical to an Eastern context. And so that's why we need to read the Word of God to, be, to understand how it was given and, and the intent behind it. So we're trying to read this book and understand it from an Eastern perspective as Westerners. And so it helps us if we can lock into the central theme of the book of Hebrews, and that is that Jesus Christ is better. Okay, the author of this book is writing to Hebrew Christians in the first century. Uh, so these are, these are Jewish believers, but as a result of becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, they've lost all the things that were important to them in Judaism. They've lost their family connection. They've lost access to the temple. and In many cases, they've lost employment. Uh, they've lost a spouse, a spouse or their, you know, their relationship with their children or their extended family. There's so much that's been lost in going after Jesus Christ that so there'd be a very strong temptation to say, well, you know, maybe we'll just kind of downplay it a little bit or just take it easy or maybe just kind of, you know, we'll just kind of fake the Judaism thing. It's... it's it's, it's good, whatever, and we'll just kind of have a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of Jesus Christ. And the author is writing this book to say, no, 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 that is not how this works. Because Jesus Christ is better than everything else. He's better than every other attempt at religion. He's better than every other element of the Old Testament law. And so what he's not doing, and this is really critical, he's not saying the Old Testament is invalid. He's not saying that there's not value in it. But he's saying that you have to understand as a Christian that Jesus Christ is the superior person and the superior object of our value and of our affection. And so the Old Testament is 
radically important to understanding our role in the kingdom of God and to understanding the, even the role that Jesus Christ played. If we try and unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament, then you have really no basis to understand why we uh, struggle with sin. We have no basis to understand why Jesus had to come and live and die in the way that he did. And so the context is very important. But the author of Hebrews wants to make very sure that we don't lose sight of uh, the end goal, and that is to know Jesus Christ. So last week we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. He's better than uh, the prophets. And tonight we're going to start just diving into chapter 3. He says, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, and when we start there, you really have to go back a little bit further because he's continuing a thought. So, therefore, what? And, and Hebrews, because it's an Eastern book, every thought is just going on another thought. I, I, there's, you know, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore. Chapter 3, verse 1, therefore. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore. Chapter 6, verse 1, therefore. He's always just continuing a thought, like, while, since this is true, this is true. Since this happened, this should happen, okay? So back up a little bit to chapter 2, verse 17, which is not even a fully great place to back up, because that also starts out, therefore, but that's where we'll go for now. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So the idea at the end of chapter 2 is that Jesus Christ was made human and that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest. And it's a thought that we're just going to keep coming back to because it's an Eastern book. So he's going to kind of jump back to it in chapter 4, jump back to it in chapter 5, jump back to it in chapter 7. Well, he's just kind of bouncing around. He's going to just emphasize this point over and over again that Jesus Christ is better than the high priesthood. He's better than the whole priestly system in the Old Testament. Okay, and he's going to then explain to us why that's relevant. But understanding that's the case. Therefore, holy brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus who was faithful to him to appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So he says, if you're kind of making a list of what is Jesus better than, Jesus is better than Moses. And understand, to the Old Testament uh, world, to, to, the, to the Jewish believers in the first century, that is a massively drastic statement. Because Moses the prophet is the man who wrote down the law. When Moses died, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. When Moses died, Moses could legitimately say, I have written the entire Bible. The only person in history who's ever been able to say that. The Jewish people held him up as, as one of the, or if not the most spiritual man in all of history. Okay? And, and the author here says, yeah, Jesus is better than that. And he's not saying that Moses is bad. He says Moses indeed was faithful. He was faithful in what God called him to do as a servant of God. But he was a servant. 
Jesus Christ is the son. There's a difference between being a really good manager of a Fortune 500 company and being the son of the man who built the company, right? You're, 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 the strings you can pull are just different. And so he's making a point here that Christ has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He says Moses uh, sort of is the house. Moses kind of built the house. That's great. He kind of gave them the law. But Jesus Christ gave them Moses. And so who's greater? Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. He's, he's working his way through these trains of thought for a Jewish believer saying you've got to understand why this is relevant because everything you're holding on to on the law that you are tempted to go back to simply to make your life easier, Jesus Christ is greater than that. So he goes on, chapter 7, therefore, you notice he's kind of building on these thoughts, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he goes back, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. Okay, it's a passage where he's saying, hey, if you, if you hear the word of God today, don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did. And he's making a sort of a big point, which is, don't grow hard. Don't lock in, you know, as, as this guy is, is basically laying out doctrine, and saying Jesus is better than the angels and better than the prophets and better than Moses, don't, get, don't start writing me off as an author here just because I'm giving you something that's hard to understand. Right? And, and, it, and that's true for all of us. If we come to a place where the word of God and our perception of God do not line up, there is always a temptation to say maybe we can just change the word of God. Right? Because after all, I'm awesome. I know everything. Right? Obviously the word of God can't actually mean what it says right here so we'll just kind of rewrite it we'll, we'll just kind of you know find the right author or the right book who agrees with my position and you can pretty much always find somebody who will agree with your position uh, and we'll just go that way and the author here is saying no 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 do not harden your hearts if God is explaining something to you if he is expressing himself to you do not harden your hearts and say oh no 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 that's not that's not what I want God to be God doesn't care what you want him to be God is who he is. And if, and if you find a divide between your perception of God and the reality of God, you're the one who needs to repent. God does not need to repent for being who he is. But he says, just beware lest there be an evil heart of unbelief. So do not, do not grow hard in hearing the truth. God is calling all of us to not grow hard. And he's going to go on, he's going to kind of carry this thought out farther and farther. But he's making a point here as he's talking about Moses being less than Jesus Christ. He's going to make a point that Moses could not bring people to the fullness of what God has for them. Verse 16, for who, having heard, rebelled? 
Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So what we're doing here is, this is like Old Testament history overview from like, this is not 30,000 feet, this is like space, okay? But if you go back in your mind to the book of Exodus, and if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Okay, I'll just, I'll level with you. Parts of what we say tonight are going to be a little bit hard to understand. And that's, that's okay. There's an exhortation actually in the end of, of where we'll be tonight. If you don't understand and you're like, I've never read that part of the scripture before. Great. There is a through the Bible in a year reading plan on the back table. You can get through in about 20 minutes a day. You can get through the entire Bible in one year and you can watch it change your life. Okay, so, but we are going to go back because the Old Testament has relevance, but its relevance is not to fulfill us. Its relevance is to point us to Jesus Christ. And so the author says, okay, go back in your mind to the story of Moses and the Exodus. Moses was, uh, was the prince of Egypt. He tried to, his people, the Israelites, were in slavery. They'd been in slavery for hundreds of years. He tried to set them free. Didn't work. He went in the wilderness for 40 years and then reached the point where God said, okay, now I can use this guy. God calls them by speaking to him through a burning bush and says, okay, go back now and this time you're going to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses goes and, and he goes to Pharaoh and says, let the children of Israel go. And Pharaoh says, no, I won't. And God then brings 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt to demonstrate his power. And after the 10th plague, Pharaoh lets Moses go. Moses leads out all the people of Israel. They cross through the Red Sea because the Lord miraculously divides the ocean and they walk through it. And the Egyptian army chases after them, the ocean closes back in and drowns the entire army. Moses led them out of Egypt, okay? He leads them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, probably in Saudi Arabia. They're there for about two years. God gives them the Old Testament law, and then he says, okay, now go into the promised land. There's a spot of land on the earth that I promised to your forefather Abraham, I want you to go live there. And they march up to it, and they send... Uh, a scouting party to go see sort of what do we need to know going into it. The party comes back and says, you know what? We know that God just miraculously delivered us from the nation of Egypt. We know that God miraculously parted the Red Sea. We know that God has miraculously provided all of our food and all of our water and met all of our needs while we've been in the desert for two years. But we have an obstacle up ahead that God cannot deliver us from. And the entire nation says, oh, okay, God failed. We get it. So it's, it's too hard. And so God says, okay. They basically, the, the people all rebel against the word of the Lord and say, we will not go into the promised land because we'll die there. It'd be better for us to die in the wilderness. And God says, okay, you're going to die in the wilderness. You are not going to be given the privilege of entering into the promised land. And so that whole generation, they were supposed to be in the desert for two years. They're in the desert for 40 years. As one by one, they all drop dead. And a new generation rises up that is willing to accept the promise of God. Okay, so he's making a point here, and he's going to, we'll keep developing it, so we're not going to, we're going to try to not get hung up here too badly. No guarantees. But he's making a point here. Moses was great. Moses did lead them out of Egypt. Moses did give them the law. Moses did not lead them into the promised land. Right? Moses was not a superhero. Moses could not do everything. There's a point at which the ministry of Moses hit a brick wall. That's the point that he's making to say, okay, as we continue this thought, 
keep in mind, right? Don't let your hearts grow hard, but Jesus Christ is better than Moses, and Moses could not historically lead the children of Israel into the nation of Israel, into the promised land. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel is preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so it's kind of, he's kind of, again, he's jumping thoughts. So he's actually, technically verse 6 would really, be, for a Westerner, be a better place to pick up. But what the heck, we're going to read it the way that God gave it to us. So he says, therefore, a promise remains of entering his rest. Okay, he's kind of going back to this, to this Old Testament passage. He's saying there's a reference in here about, you know, hey, they didn't, get to enter into the rest. And so there's an idea of there's a rest to be entered into. Okay, and so he's taking the historical the historical narrative, the factual account of the Israelite exodus, and he's drawing spiritual applications from it. Okay, and this is 1 Corinthians 10 says that the things hap- that happened to Israel happened as an example to us. Okay, so when we read Old Testament history, we read it as factual historical narrative. But the Lord says there are metaphors and principles and lessons in there for you to learn. Okay? So he's saying there's an idea of entering into rest that we need to be careful to heed. Because there's an invitation to enter into rest. Okay? The, the promised land was an invitation to rest, but they didn't enter into it. And he says we have the same invitation to a rest. We need to make sure we don't make the same mistake spiritually that the Israelite people did where they said, no, no, God can't bring us rest. He says, they heard the words of God. We've heard the words of God. So what's, what's the difference? The word needs to be mixed with faith in those who hear it. If you want to see the word of God work in your life, it needs to be mixed with faith. And faith, we will get into this way more in chapter 11. Faith is not confidence. We think of faith as confidence, right? A person, if I said, he's a man of great faith, you're going to have in your mind a picture of this guy who just like goes for it, has no, you know, no holds barred, we're just going. Biblically, that's not really what faith is. Great faith in the Bible does not equal great confidence. Great faith equals great obedience, okay? If you want to exercise your faith, you walk in obedience, So if you're hearing the word of God and you want it to bring you into a place of rest in your soul, if you want to be in a place of spiritual rest, you need to obey the word of God. You need to hear the word of God and mix it with faith. Mix it with obedience in your action to enter into that rest. So verse 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter it and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, So some can enter it, but the Israelites did not enter it. Verse 7, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, 
after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So he's making a, he's making a bunch of points here. Okay, he says, Joshua was the leader for the nation of Israel who brought them into the promised land. When God said, all this, these people are not going to go into the promised land, he said there's going to be two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. And he never says anything about Moses right there. And you have to wonder what Moses thought for the next 40 years. Like, did, you know, like, I was willing to go in, but did, did the Lord just mess that up? And was it like, what, you know, what's, we have no record of what went through Moses' head during the next 38 years. But Moses, right before it's time to go into the promised land, sins by failing to represent the Lord accurately before the people. God says, I want you to do this. And Moses walks out, he's ticked off, and he kind of does this. And God says, you have misrepresented me. God takes the position of spiritual leadership very seriously. And he tells Moses, you are not going to bring the people into this land. Now here's the deal. With that, what God is doing is he's raising up Joshua, he's bringing Joshua into a position of leadership, but he's also setting a spiritual picture for us. And that is that the law, all of the Old Testament, it is wonderful. And it can, it can help bring us out of sin and bondage, but it cannot bring us into rest. It cannot bring us into spiritual rest. Moses could not bring the people into the promised land. Joshua brought the people into the promised land. And there's an idea there that we're given that works, the law, all the, doing good things cannot bring us into rest. We need a new leader. We need somebody else to take us into a position of rest. And the name Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form. Okay? So Joshua becomes a picture for us of Jesus Christ. He brings us into the promised land. He gives us rest. Now, here's the thing though. In the promised land, they're still fighting wars. They're still making mistakes. They're still struggling. So it's not rest in the sense of perfection but it's rest in the sense of a victorious life serving the Lord. And so the author's making a point here when he says, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's quoting from the book of Psalms where David is writing prophetically. David is writing 500 years after the time of Joshua. And so he's, the author here is saying, okay, understand this. Joshua is the type of Jesus Christ, but he is not Jesus Christ himself. We look at the, at the character of Joshua and we say, okay, I get it. Joshua is pointing out to us through his example that we need Jesus Christ in order to have rest. And the author saying, yes, so accept Jesus Christ to have rest. Don't read that and say, oh, that's a cute historical observation. Read it and respond to it. Okay, and when should you respond to it? Today. The great thing is David wrote this psalm what, 3,000 years ago? And he wrote down the word today. It's still today, right? When David wrote it, it was today. When we're reading it right now, it's today. So when should you respond to what God is calling you to? Today. When is it time to walk in obedience? Today. When is it time to repent of sin? Today. When is it time to say, I am tired of 
wandering around in the desert and I want to enter into rest. Even if it's a rest that is, you know, that is full of, of battles and, and hardship, I, there's a spiritual rest there that I want to enter into. When's the best time to do that? Today. How do you do that? You receive the word of God with faith. You walk in obedience to what the word of God says and you'll find spiritual rest. You won't necessarily find that your life is all of a sudden easy. In the book of Joshua, we're probably going to be there in just a couple years. Okay, we're going to get to the end and then start over. In the book of Joshua, there's, there's a lot of wars. But there's a, there's a rest and a fulfillment in the sense of we are where God has called us to be. And so if you want to be in that place in your life, receive the word of God, he says, with faith. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Let us anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So, hey, today's the great day to do it. How earnestly should we do it? Do it like you mean it. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So he says if you want to enter into rest he's kind of tying it back into the beginning of chapter 4 the word of God heard with faith will bring us into rest and then he clarifies what the word of God is going to do because the word of God is living And it is active. This is not a book, per se. This is the written heart of God. God has texted you. And it's a long text. But when I get a text, usually I open it and read it. He says, I have a message for you. I want you to know who I am, who you are, why the two of us are separated, and what can be done to reconcile it. Here's the manual. And it's alive because it's, it's uh, in Second Timothy, when it says it's given by inspiration of God, it could literally translate, it's God-breathed, right? We have no idea who wrote this book, in this book of Hebrews, but we know that God breathed the words through the author's pen. And so it can still speak to us every day, thousands of years later. You can be praying about a situation, open your Bible as you're going through your daily reading, and all of a sudden, it can slap you, Right? It can just smack you in the head with, oh, that's what God wants me to do. It's powerful. This is not the ideas of men. This is the power of God given to us. And then notice also a couple things. It's, it's discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God will teach you what you're actually thinking. Isn't that interesting? You don't know what you're actually thinking. You don't know what your presuppositions are. You don't know what your assumptions are. But the word of God does. God knows. And he will use his word to teach you what you're actually thinking, and then to correct you, right? But it's also sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit. You know, a two-edged sword cuts, cuts both ways, and a two-edged sword has a point, right? The Word of God can go very deep, very fast. And if it's used by someone who wants to just exercise their power, it can sometimes be used to beat somebody up. Right? But it's sharp. The Word of God is a very sharp object. And if you've ever worked with sharp objects before, right? I do quite a bit. Okay? Sharp objects are just kind of in my line of work. Um, and you know what happens when you work with sharp objects? You get cut. Right? It just, it just, it, it's the darndest thing. It happens. Right? You hold knives and saws all day long, and sooner or later you get 
cuts and saw marks, right? When I'm in the middle of building a guitar or something, I can usually count to at least eight cuts on my hand at any given time. And they're healing up fast, and so usually that means like 20 or 30 by the time I'm done with the project. But it just, you get cut. You hold sharp objects, you get cut, right? And people say like, oh, you know, make it sharper because it's safer. It is safer, but it also makes those cuts a little juicier when, when you do slip, right? You know, that sound just right through your thumb, and it's like, dang, that thing really, wow, that was a sharp knife. Um, but the Word of God is supposed to cut you. When's the last time the Word of God cuts you? Right? If the Word of God isn't cutting you, then either you're not handling it or you're handling it like it's a dull object. God wants to cut us with his word because there are parts of our hearts, parts of our lives that need to be cut away. And so if the word of God doesn't offend you, you're not reading it. Right? I, I mean, I could go back and I could give you just through this year. I've had a couple very distinct moments where the Lord just, you know, kind of stuck it in, gave it a little twist, and something dropped out, right? But, but the word of God is supposed to offend us because truth is offensive. Truth tells you here is a standard, you fail. You fall short of the standard. And if you want to lie to yourself and say, no, 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 I'm a basically good person, the word of God will say, no, you're not. It will hurt your feelings. And consequently, you've got to be careful how far you take this, but the role of a biblical church is not to be nice to people. It is actually to offend people with the truth. The role of a church is not to leave people walking out of church feeling better about themselves. It's not to make the world a better place to go to hell from. It is to make people realize, wow, God is incredibly good because I am incredibly sinful and he still wants a relationship with me. Right? A church should never be about pumping you up. It should be about glorifying Christ and as we go through the word, he will speak to us, he will direct us, he will guide us, but he will cut us. Because he wants to draw us closer and there are things that are holding us back. There are ropes that tie us down and he wants to slice them off. He wants us to be able to walk in freedom and so he's going to say, okay, here's my word. I want to do something with your life. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What is our confession? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's hold on to that, he says. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, he says, and really, um, this would have been a great place to start chapter 5, but what the heck. But, he says, we need to hold fast to our confession because we believe that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he's actually now going to kind of start to carry a new thought that Jesus Christ is better than the priestly system and he's better than the high priest. He's the best high priest. And so he says, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Grace is where we experience the goodness of God, not, in, not because of our goodness, but in spite of our badness. It's where we experience the goodness of God because God is lavish with his gifts. And the author here says, we just, we come. It, it's incredible and that God invites us into his presence at all. And then he has the audacity to say, come boldly. If you've sinned, repent boldly. And then ask for the Spirit to fill you up again boldly. 
right? There, there, there is, it's this incredible thing that's hard for us to even fathom where there's so much shame and sin and yet so much grace. Paul says in Romans 4, I think, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Or literally, grace superabounded, right? Where sin is going nuts, grace has the ability to go even more nuts because the grace of God is beyond your ability to comprehend. So come boldly to the throne of grace. But also, he says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. This is important. He's going to make this point that he's going to kind of then flesh out through chapter 5. We have a high priest who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we struggle to understand this sometimes because we were told by the scriptures that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And so we believe it as a truth because a reliable God has handed it to us. But we don't really have the full mental capacity to understand what that's like. Okay, it's hard for us to conceive the idea that Jesus Christ had the ability to sin. Okay, now, he didn't necessarily have the desire to sin because he, uh, he didn't have a sinful nature that had that drive to sin that we experience, but he had the ability because he was fully human. Okay? And so the author's going to make a point here. Jesus is not, he's just not, he doesn't have a disconnect between our sin and our desire not to sin. Jesus doesn't have an unrealistic expectation of what we ought to be doing because Jesus himself experienced temptation. And we could say, well, it's he was God. He, didn't, he never gave in. But think about for a second. Jesus experienced the highest levels of temptation. You know, how high do we go before we cave when we're tempted, right? Like on a scale from one to 10, like do we ever actually make it to a one? You know, like, like you know, when we're getting tempted, how, how, how much temptation do we actually endure before we just say, oh, fine, let's just go for the sin, you know? Jesus endured it all the way up. Because when you resist temptation, temptation increases, right? Well, let's, you didn't fall for that. Let's try something a little more subtle. Let's try something a little more nuanced. Let's try something a little more alluring, right? Jesus experienced the highest form of temptation and yet did not sin. So when we understand Jesus as a perfect high priest, the author's making sure he doesn't want us to lose sight of what this means. Don't think of Jesus as a two-dimensional guy on a painting with a golden halo, all right? Jesus is not a stained glass piece of artwork. He's a, he's a real human being who understood temptation actually at a higher level than any person in this room ever will and yet still did not sin. And so with that, the author is now going to start to make a case that Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better form of priesthood than everything that we had in the Old Testament. Verse 5, or chapter 5. And we're actually going to, um, we're going to read all the way down through verse 11 because it's kind of one big giant thought. And so we're going to bite it all off and then chew it. Verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So thankfully, he at least clarifies at the end that it is kind of hard to explain all this. So I'm in good company. But there's a couple big thoughts that he has here, okay? The first is that the priest had a role that was given to them. You couldn't, in the ancient Israelite, in the Israelite world, say, well, I want to be a priest. You know, it wasn't on, like, a career day or whatever. It wasn't like, you know, I think that's interesting. The, the benefits are okay. The risks aren't too bad. I could, I could go for that. You know, I could kind of see myself. It kind of fits my personality, style, whatever. No, no. You were either a priest or you weren't. And it was determined by the time you were born. Because in order to be a priest, you had to be descended from the tribe of Levi. So the, the nation of Israel is made up of 12 tribes, more or less the 12 sons of Jacob. And in order to be a priest, you had to be descended from the line of Levi. And more specifically, you had to be descended from Levi's great-grandson, Aaron. Okay, if you weren't descended from Aaron, you weren't going to be a priest. It was a role that was given to you, not a role that you assumed. And, and there's, there are times in the Old Testament where various leaders tried to say, you know what, I'm going to be a priest too. And God dealt very severely with it because he said, you do not take on the, you do not have the right to take on the role of being a mediator between God and man. You do not have that right. If I give that to you, that is one thing, but you do not have the right to assume that role. The other thing is the priest had to be able to sympathize with the people. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the important roles of a priest and really of any person in a position of leadership, but to sympathize with the people you're representing. A priest's job is to represent the people to the Lord and to represent the Lord to the people. And so as people are coming to him and, and explaining their struggles, he needs to be able to sympathize, right? If you come up to uh, a pastor and you say, hey, I'm really struggling with some health things. Could you pray for me? And they say, well, I'll pray, but to be honest, I've never been sick a day in my life. I, I can't even fathom what a stiff joint feels like. So I'll pray, but I honestly have no idea what I'm praying for here because I just, like, it's not my thing, okay, right? Or, you know, hey, pastor, I'm really struggling with lust. Well, sorry, but I just, you know, I nailed that one when I was 10 years old and I've been good ever since. It's just, you know, never, never been a problem for me. You wouldn't feel super, like, encouraged, right? So a priest needs to be able to sympathize with the people, but an Old Testament priest also had to have his own sins forgiven. Because not only is he representing the people to God, he's representing God to the people. He's going into the presence of God. And so once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, they called it, in the tabernacle or eventually in the temple, and, rep and go before the presence of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. But before he did that, he had to make atonement for his own sins. 
And it was such a sacred moment, and the presence of God was so holy and so powerful that if he did not atone for his sins properly, he would be killed. The presence of God is so holy that sinfulness cannot endure in it. And so the priest was at a serious risk to his life every time, once a year, when he stepped into that room. And the people were at serious risk once a year of having their sins for the past year not fully forgiven. Because let's say the priest was just a little sloppy or stayed up a little late and so was kind of rushing things uh, and so he doesn't quite get it all right and he dies. Nobody else is going into that room. That room is reserved for the high priest once a year to go in. And so as, as the people are, are waiting, if the priest, they would, according to Jewish tradition, they would put bells, uh, they would tie bells to his outfit and they would tie a rope around his waist because let's say he's not holy and he goes in the presence of God and God kills him. We're not going in there to get him out. And we're also not leaving the corpse in the presence of God, right? So we're going to haul the guy out of there but we're listening because I don't want to interrupt his moment with God either. So if the bells stop jingling, shoot. Okay, well, time to pull him out and we'll hope that God can you know, show mercy to us for this next year until we get another high priest next year and hopefully he'll be able to atone for our sins. But before the priest could go into the presence of God, his own sins had to be dealt with. And so the author's taking these thoughts and he says, okay, now understand because of that, Jesus Christ is a better high priest. He did not take the role to himself. He was given up by God the Father. And he'll actually go back and he's going to clarify in chapter 7. So we are not going to get stuck in the weeds here tonight but he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek Jesus was not from the line of Levi he was not from the line of Aaron but God puts him in a position as a priest and we'll explain that next week but so he's he's put in the role by God okay he's able to sympathize with the people because he has been tempted but he's also able to accurately represent people before God and God before the people because he has not sinned. Jesus doesn't need to pay for anything in order to represent us before God. And so consequently, there's no wait period. There's, there's no delay in going to the presence of God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace because at any point in time, Jesus Christ is a sufficient ambassador to represent us before the Lord. Okay? So the author's making a point here. Jesus Christ is greater than the high priest. If you, want to be, if you want to come into the presence of God, you need a representative. You are not holy enough. So you need a, a really, in a sense, a holy ambassador to, to go before you, to get you ready, to, to put his credentials and his righteousness upon you so that you can be in the presence of God. And the author's saying, that's who Jesus Christ is is and so that's who we go to right frankly no disrespect but you'd have no need to ever go to mary or to any saint i don't care how spiritual they were i don't care how how god honoring they were with their life they're not as good as jesus christ why would you settle for second when when the author of hebrews says we can go boldly before the throne of grace because our mediator our ambassador was tempted in every way but did not sin. He's the perfect high priest. So just go into the presence of Jesus Christ in order to be in fellowship with God. And he says, I'd like to go into this a little further, but 
Uh, I'm going to explain this whole Melchizedek thing. Of him we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. So really, he's getting ready to launch into this whole explanation of who Melchizedek is. But first, he's going to sort of go off on a little bit of a tangent and rebuke them for being slow learners. And so that's really where chapter 6 will take us. Next week, we'll get in chapter 7. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, verse 12, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He says, you ought to be growing up as Christians. And in his letter to the Jewish Christians, he says, you're not. You need to, you need to suck it up and act like men. Right? Men eat steak, babies drink milk. It's time to eat steak. And so for each one of us, you get to a passage like this, it's just good to step back and say, well, where am I? And if you're a new believer, he makes a, if you're, a baby should be drinking milk. If you're new to serving the Lord and walking with the Lord and the word of God is totally foreign to you, that's awesome, right? But if you've been walking with the Lord for years and years and years and you have no idea what anybody's talking about and you're always getting lost and, and I don't know and I don't really read my Bible because it's hard to understand and, you know, I, I come to church when I feel like it, but I just don't always feel like it because who does, you know? The, the author says, you know what? Suck it up, grow up, shape up. There's a point in time at which there needs to be an immense amount of grace with someone who's a new believer. Of course they don't know certain things. Of course they're growing. But there's a point in time at which you need to say, you know what? If you're walking with the Lord, it's time to grow. So that's what the author's saying. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. That's his list of, of basics, which is kind of humbling, right, for every one of us. Like, according to the author of Hebrews, we ought to have these, you know, foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. You guys, we all ought to have those nailed down, according to this guy. Yikes. Keep growing. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. <clears throat> okay, chapter 4 through 6, or verse 4 through 6, sorry. The author makes a statement that seriously confuses a lot of people. And I'm not going to lay claim to say that I have got it perfectly figured out, but we are going to dive into it because we go through the Word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So he says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. That's kind of a scary verse for people because it sounds like what he's saying is if you're a Christian and you quit being a Christian, it's impossible to come back. That door closes and you're never welcome. And the challenge is that that 
at that, at that statement in that way contradicts what we know about the rest of Scripture, right? It contradicts the parable of the prodigal son where you have someone who's in the family. He's a partaker of all the good gifts. He runs away, blows through everything he had, comes back, and his father says, nope, it's impossible for you to be restored. And he doesn't, doesn't say that. His father runs to him, right, and welcomes him home. The father, as the picture of God, it's the only time in all Scripture that we see God in a hurry is to welcome back a kid who's coming home, okay? It's the only time. God is always in a hurry to welcome someone back. So what is he saying here? Is he saying that if you're a Christian and you walk away, you can't be forgiven again? I don't, I don't believe so. Because every Christian has sinned. And every sin separates us from God. So how many sins is the final mark? Right? Where, where's the metric? I'd say most, you know, most people in this room have had a period uh, if you're walking with the Lord now, I've had a period where you really weren't doing so hot with the Lord. Maybe where you were just completely not interested in the Lord. And yet, here you are because the Lord is faithful to bring us back. He's faithful to work in our lives. So, there's a couple things that people sort of pull out of this. I'm going to just kind of give, give them both to you and say I think they're both very plausible explanations. If you don't like either one of them, that's fine. You're probably smarter than I am anyways. But he says, uh, it's impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Some pastors say, basically, the point of this is, yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to do anything about someone else's salvation. And that is entirely biblical. You know, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So there's a point at which I think the passage is saying, uh, yeah, if someone falls away, you are not going to bring them back to the Lord on your own. You are not going to out-reason them. You're not going to out-argue them. You are not going to convince them. It is impossible for you to change someone's heart. That is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. It's not to say that we don't try. It's not to say that we don't make good efforts and, and study up when there's a challenge to the faith that we're not sure how to answer. It's not to say we're irresponsible but we understand that we can't do it on our own. The other thought is that in the context, he is writing this to Jewish Christians, okay? And so there's a concept here where as he's saying, you know, he's chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, he's continuing an idea. He's continuing an idea that Jesus Christ is the best high priest and that he has superseded the entire sacrificial system. And so there are some pastors who would say what this verse is saying is that if you try and go away from Jesus and go back to the sacrificial system to get your sins taken care of, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. If you go back to sacrificing animals after you've tasted of the, of the grace of Jesus Christ, those animals are not going to cleanse your sins. They are not going to do a thing for you. Okay? So that's, I'm going to say those are, uh, I think, probably the two best explanations for this verse. But it is a confusing verse and people do struggle with it. So if you're like, I'm having a hard time with that. You are in great company. Uh, every Christian everywhere has always struggled with this verse. Verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, 
If the verse about falling away bothers you, do you know what the simplest solution is? Don't fall away. Right? He says, we're confident of better things concerning you guys. You guys, you shouldn't have to have this. If you're in this position of, I'm so concerned I'm going to fall away from God. Okay, well, why? Is it because you have, you know, is it because you're not walking towards the Lord? Well, let's deal with that right now. Is it because you have unrepentant sin in your heart? Let's deal with that right now. If you're concerned about walking away from the Lord, you know, let, let basically don't take a verse of Scripture and make it a hypothetical. Well, what about this person who walked away from the Lord? No, no. What about you? What about me? Am I concerned that if I walk away from the Lord, I won't be restored again? If I don't walk away from the Lord, I don't have to worry about it. So he says, hey, you know what? Just keep walking toward the Lord. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, he's making a point here, okay? And again, he's going back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament's role is to point us to Christ, but it does not supersede Christ. He says, when God wanted to make an oath to Abraham, he swore by himself because there's nothing higher than God. When we make an oath, we swear by something higher than ourselves. That's why you swear, you know, just, I mean, everybody has their own swear, you know, traditionally, right? But you would, you know, if you're taking an oath in court, you, traditionally you would lay your hand on a Bible because you're implying, I am bringing myself under the accountability of this book. At a wedding, a pastor says, by the authority invested in me, okay? Because I've been given uh, a, a greater authority than just my own declaration, Right? There's an understanding of things greater than us. And the author says, God doesn't have anything greater than him. So when he makes an oath and he wants to like, you know, declare an oath and swear to the highest power, he just says, yeah, I'm saying it. Because God's integrity is the highest form of oath that could possibly be given. So he says that's the case with Abraham. Now, if God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, who's that? That's us. The immutability of his counsel, that's the, the eternity of his word, and confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. He's saying God has set an oath in place. And the oath, if you go back to what's the last Old Testament reference he's made in this book, it's that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God has made an oath through the prophetic writing of King David to say that Jesus Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, according to the order of Melchizedek, we'll get into next week. But the point the author is making is that God has made an oath. He made an oath to Abraham and he could swear by no one greater than himself. He's made an oath to us that Jesus Christ is greater. He is a priest forever. 
God has made us an oath that forever, for all of eternity, Jesus Christ will be a sufficient high priest to represent us before God, to deal with our sins, to sympathize with us as a high priest. And so he says, we have a strong consolation that we can lay hold of the hope that is set before us. In verse 19, he says, this hope we have as an anchor. If you want to anchor on to something, if you want to enter into rest, you need to anchor on to something, right? A ship is at rest once you drop the anchor. If you don't drop the anchor, you're at serious risk of finding yourself thinking you're at rest and waking up and realizing you're going down. If you want to be at rest, you need an anchor. And the anchor is that Jesus Christ is a priest forever. So the point of this book, right, the cent- that central hub that's reiterated over and over and over again in this book is that Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And, it, and it's a crazy truth because it is at, at the same time the most simple, basic thing. Right? Almost any three-year-old can understand we do bad things, God loves us, he wants to forgive us. And Jesus Christ came and lived and died so that we could be forgiven. The most intelligent person on earth can't fully comprehend that statement. The most innocent child on earth can. Right? It's the most basic and the most complicated truth ever given to us. But it is an anchor. So, you know, in the same way we read the epistles of Paul and talks about grace and peace and we say, if you don't have peace, you've got to get grace first. If you don't have rest you've got to find an anchor. And the anchor is that Jesus Christ is better. So Lord, we thank you that you are better. You are better than Moses. You are better than the law. You are better than the priesthood. God, we don't want to settle short. We don't want to try and, and earn our way most of the way to a, to a good attempt at priesthood. We don't want to take that role for ourselves. It's been given to you. And so we pray that we would anchor our souls to you, that you would be our source of truth, our source of comfort, our source of rest, that nothing else would ever take precedent in our hearts, but that you would always be first and foremost. We pray that your word would would pierce deeply, that you would cut away the things that you do not want there, but that you would also uh, use it to build us up, to show us the true thoughts and intents of our heart, to change the thoughts and intents of our hearts to those things that glorify you. And so we pray, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our priest. Amen.